As we've just sung of the God of grace, renewing our faith, we will read a similar theme in Ephesians chapter 2. We turn to read Ephesians 2 now, the whole chapter. We see in this chapter the work of our Lord granting us faith, granting those who are dead in sin the gift of faith. This is the inspired word of God. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. In the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
We will read our text for this morning's sermon once more, taken from verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast so far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Long ago, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the result of that was that they lost their spiritual life. They became dead in sin, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. The human race became spiritually dead. And that includes us. Scripture says that in Adam... All die. Now, if we realize that we were dead, really spiritually dead, that has some important consequences. First, if we were dead, then we can't do anything to save ourselves. And second, if we're dead, then someone else is going to have to save us. And third, When we are actually saved, when that happens, we won't be able to take any credit for the work because we were dead. Our passage shuts down all boasting and pride by showing how exactly it is that a spiritually dead human race can be saved. I preach to you the word of God this morning with this theme. God gives you salvation by grace through faith. And we'll see first how we're saved, and second, who saves us. First then, how, how we're saved. In verse 8, we have a concise statement of how a Christian's saved. Quote, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how the Ephesians were saved, that's how we're saved. And there's a reason that the apostle Paul is telling the Ephesians how God rescued them. Verse 8 begins with the word for. That word in verse 8 means that Paul is about to say something. He's about to give a reason or an explanation for what he's already said. We use the word for the same way sometimes. God's children are are rich for they inherit the earth. And verse 8 uses that word for in the same way, to introduce an explanation of the marvelous things that the Lord has done earlier in chapter 2, even back in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the Ephesians have heard what their life was like before Christ. They were dead in sin. They were dead. But these spiritually dead pagans are now alive in Christ. What happened? How did they go from death to life. And in verse 3, we read that these Ephesians were children of wrath. How can the children of wrath, in verse 3, be raised up and seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, in verse 6? 
There's a massive gap between point A and point B. How do you get from the one to the other? Remember, they were dead in sin. They couldn't budge. They couldn't move. They were spiritually dead. All they could do was spew out the rotten fruit of sin and wickedness. They were poisoned wells. And the change came by grace. Verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved. And that phrase, by grace, it's, it's emphasized. It stands boldly at the front. By grace. When all hope was lost, when there was no flicker of light in our darkened hearts, then by grace the Lord came to save and to deliver. The God of Scripture is and always is a God of grace. He is, in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious. He is, in John chapter 1, Christ the Lord, full of grace and truth. God is always and unchangeably a God of grace. And we can define that grace as God's undeserved favor towards sinful people. It's God's bountiful kindness to fallen sinners. When Scripture speaks of God's grace, it doesn't mean that God gives something better in return for something good. There's no quid pro quo, no give and take. Grace is totally undeserved, not not partly deserved. We didn't deserve one tiny little bit of our salvation. We have no claim, no right to this salvation. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, not good, not righteous, still sinners, Christ died for us. The point is that Christ dies for sinners. He doesn't die for the friend, but for the enemy, for the covenant breaker, for the wicked, for the disobedient. We offered nothing to earn God's favor. We were an insult and an offense to him. And then he sent his son for our sake. And Christ doesn't die for the cream of the crop, maybe the extra holy saints, he doesn't compromise and say, okay, I guess um, I'll die for the average Joe as well as the really super Christian, you know, the, the guy or the girl with a few, but not, not too many sins. The death of Christ is for the undeserving and the sinners, the pagans, the thieves, the prostitutes. And Paul knows that the Ephesians used to lead that kind of sinful life. He reminds them about it. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says they were walking and living, quote, according to the prince of the power of the air. They were servants of Satan. And in verse 12, he says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
The Ephesians weren't just uh, twiddling their thumbs, sitting on the fence and umming and ahhing about God. They were dead set against God. They did the devil's work and they had no right to expect God's favor. And that shows us how undeserved grace is. Christ found nothing in us that moved him to the cross. But out of the overflow of grace and love, the Father sent Christ to die for a wicked race. How many sermons could be written just on those words, He died. The Lord of glory, the King of kings, died a humiliating death. But what for? He died for sinners out of mere grace. That is God's glorious grace that the Ephesians now enjoy. It's what chapter 2 verse 7 in Ephesians calls the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's grace is his glorious, undeserved kindness to sinners. And that grace appears clearly in the salvation the Ephesians have received. Verse 8 says, you have been saved. God's grace is on display. Already even now, Paul tells the Ephesians, you have been saved. It's past tense. What scripture says is that something has already happened. It's done. You have been saved. To put it another way, there's no work left for you to do for your salvation. It's all done. You are already right with God, reconciled, redeemed, forgiven. It actually has happened. And that means the rest of the Christian life, in a sense, is just a victory lap. It is a celebration of what the Lord has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Ephesians are... Christians in the New Testament time, together with us, they look back to the cross. They see the work that's already been done there on the tree. And for the Ephesians, that complete finished salvation is it's surprising news. After all, not too long ago, they were, or they had no hope. They were without God in the world, according to verse 12. But now the pagan Ephesians sit shoulder to shoulder with Jews in church, they're both reconciled to one God in one faith and one hope. And beforehand, these Ephesians didn't know a thing about God's covenant and promises. But now by God's grace alone, they could take the bread and the cup of the new covenant, as you will do next week, the Lord willing. They can enjoy that God-given meal because they were as verse 19 says, fellow citizens in God's kingdom. They used to serve there in Ephesus at the huge temple of Artemis, counted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They used to serve there, but now the inspired word comes to them and says, paraphrasing verse 22, now you Ephesians, you yourselves are the temple and God is living in you by his spirit. This is the mind-boggling salvation that God gives to his people by grace. By grace, you are the temple of God, 
citizens in his kingdom, members of his covenant. By grace, you have been saved. And God's people, God's church, they receive God's blessing through faith. Verse 8 says, you have been saved through faith. Faith receives and knows and trusts God's gracious salvation. That, that word faith basically means trust or confidence. And there are many kinds of trust and confidence. People place their trust in all sorts of different things. But Christian faith, Christian trust has a specific content. There are specific things that the trust is in. The example's been used of trusting in a, in a chair. You trust in the strength of the chair's legs. You trust those legs won't break when you sit down. And what do Christians put their faith in? Their faith is in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul already gave thanks for the Ephesians' faith. Their, quote, faith in the Lord Jesus. They put their confidence and trust in Christ to deliver them from sin and Satan. That kind of faith is a, a sure knowledge, a personal confidence, just as Lord's Day 7 says in the Catechism. Faith trusts in Christ's work for me. The Ephesians had the faith to say, for me, Christ died. They had that personal trust that God had made them citizens in God's kingdom. No longer could they ultimately be called Ephesians, but now Christians. When the Ephesians believed in Christ, they freely received their salvation, their citizenship in heaven. As a result, there was a holy congregation in Ephesus, a congregation of former pagans who now trusted in God for their salvation. And God had worked that trust in them. The Canons of Dort, chapter 3 and 4, article 14, we're reminded there that faith is something God has, quote, instilled and infused into us. That means God puts faith in you and causes you to believe willingly. The Lord does not just offer us faith like a meal on a platter. He doesn't wait to see if we have the appetite for faith and We'll take it and use that faith for believing. The truth is that God causes us to trust and to believe. He doesn't wait for us to accept faith or test it out. He works it in us like kneading flour into a lump of dough until we really believe from the heart. The Lord works in us this living faith in Christ. In the Old Testament, the, the people of God, they could see with a similar faith, they could see an outline and a shadow of Christ. Listen to how Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, describes Moses. It says there he was, quote, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses saw Christ dimly. He believed in Christ, he did 
see Christ, think of Christ, esteem Christ. And he counted his suffering for Christ greater than the treasures that Egypt could offer. But for us today, Christ is pictured not dimly, but clearly. He is our faithful saviour, the carpenter from Nazareth, the son of God in the flesh. And the Lord always works this faith in his people so that they trust in Christ. And through that faith, which God infuses into us, we receive Christ and are united to him. This union with Christ, this life that we have with Christ, God makes that happen by faith. By my count, 17 times you can read in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians the words, in Christ or in Him. You are in Christ. You are in Him. Your life is bound up, woven together with His. By nature you were dead in sin. But now you are united to Christ, alive together with him. And faith unites us to Christ so closely that scripture says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, already we are raised, already we sit together with him in the heavenly places. And through faith we are so tightly, spiritually yoked to Christ that we have our flesh in heaven. And therefore, we are raised, we are seated in heaven above with Christ. Nothing's going to break that bond with Christ, our head. Our resurrection, our glorious future, these things can't be shaken because we are members of Christ. We will forever be joined with Christ, our head, who has gone on before us and sits in heaven, on high. And this great blessing of salvation in Christ comes from the love of God the Father. Verses 4 and 5 say, because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together. He made us alive together with Christ. The love of God the Father for you for me, is far higher than the heavens. He gives us his only son, the true Isaac. He is the son that chapter 1 verse 6 calls the beloved. And only through this son can we have eternal life with our God. I wonder if it was a little easier for the Ephesians to see that their, their life in Christ was an undeserved blessing. After all, they they came out of paganism and they turned to the Lord in faith. But for most of us, we've grown up in church, we've sung the songs, we've come to church week by week, we've served the Lord, maybe for as long as you can remember. But actually, that doesn't make you any different. The sin in our lives is the same foul, tarry pollution that comes out of the heart of heathen pagans and without the grace of God drawing us in instilling faith in our hearts we also would dive right into the sin of the world the sin in our hearts 
and that root of original sin, that's the guarantee that we would be just like the world without God's grace. There's nothing in us that would keep us back from the horror, from the shock, from the depravity that we see around us. Look what the world does. They kick and scream and demand the right to murder their own flesh and blood, innocent children in the womb. They call good evil, and they call a man a woman. They inject puberty blockers into their own offspring. It's a a crying shame, it's a ridiculous joke, an abomination before God. And without grace, that's you. Without grace, we would all be there. We would be servants of Satan following the prince of the power of the air. And the same severe acid of sin that rots away in us also is the same as the sin in them. The only thing that makes us different to the world is grace. The only difference that matters between them and us is grace. By grace, by God's undeserved favor, by grace, you are here today trusting in the Lord. Salvation is God's free, unmerited work that comes through faith. And to make it abundantly clear that God alone does this work, Scripture adds in verses 8 and 9, quote, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we'll see in our second point, who saves us. In spite of the many ways people try to find to put themselves into salvation, put their work into salvation, the work of salvation, it's really only God who saves us. Verse 8 describes this saving work of God. When verse 8 says, and that not of yourselves, the word that there, and that not of yourselves, it's referring to that whole previous phrase, by grace you've been saved. In other words, this fact of your salvation by grace through faith, that is not something you did. Verse 8 uses these short, punchy Greek phrases to drive home the point. We could translate it this way. That is not from you. It's God's gift, not from works. Get it straight. You've added nothing to your salvation. There are many ways to make me and my work a part of salvation. But Scripture rules them all out. John chapter 1 verse 13, for example, says that God's children, quote, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you didn't receive grace because of your your blood, because you came from a good family or a good household. And you aren't saved because of your will and your, your personal choices and your desires. The Lord didn't go and inspect the city of Ephesus to to find the best pagans and save them. He didn't save us because we attend the right church, sing the right songs and don't party too hard. Maybe you've uh, avoided porn and all kinds of sexual immorality. Maybe you concentrate hard in catechism class or maybe you take notes during the sermon. 
that won't save you. We're not saved by hard spiritual work. Can you imagine the spiritual strain of a monk or a nun who goes to a a convent or a monastery at a young age? Maybe they uh, take a vow of chastity, they take a, a vow of poverty, and they wake up at night for vigils, for prayers. All that effort won't carry them one step closer to heaven, not to mention how unbiblical it is anyway. Think about Martin Luther, for example. He became a monk, entered a monastery, he made his pilgrimages, he carried out good works with the fervor, with the strain of a zealot. And what did he get for it all? No peace, just troubles and pangs of conscience, tears and fear. But only when God opened his eyes to see that salvation is a gift of God's grace, only then did Luther find the joy of salvation in Christ. Luther writes in in 1520, during the Reformation, he writes this treatise called The, The Freedom of a Christian. And in that treatise, he writes, Behold, without any merit on my part, By his pure free mercy, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of justification and salvation, although I am an unworthy and condemned sinner. I no longer lack anything except enough faith to really believe that this is so. Luther came to see that God's salvation is a free gift, a gift that spits out all of our best works and efforts to save ourselves. Verse 9 describes this salvation as it truly is. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift, free and gracious. And the faith through which we are saved is part of that gift. The Canons of Dort, chapter 3 and 4, Article 14, say that God, quote, brings about in man both the will to believe and the act of believing. God does it. That's what our text is saying. God does not give us a choice to have faith. He gives faith. He brings about the act of believing. We may feel like we are the ones doing faith, we are holding on, we are trusting in God, but God is truly the cause. We don't hold on to God in faith as much as God holds on to us. And what a comfort that is. It doesn't matter how much the Ephesians loved Artemis, loved their temples, loved their shrines. It doesn't matter because the Lord reaches down and redirects their hearts so that one day they begin to trust in God and to love the truth. And here's what God does, to quote the Canons of Dort once more, God graciously softens the heart no matter how hard they may be and inclines them to believe. The God whom heaven and earth can't contain, he comes down, he comes to the lowly and does his divine work, infusing faith into the hearts of his people. 
And through that faith, we have received that gift of salvation. The Lord brings salvation to his people completely by grace. And that shuts out every opportunity for boasting. Verse 9 concludes, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is by grace through faith so that God gets the glory and we may boast in him, not in ourselves. We can only claim that our sin is our own. If it's true, if it's true that we are by nature full of sin, by nature servants of Satan, then what part of that sin would you want to go and boast about and tell your friends about as you chat after church? What part of that would you want to show off? We have our sin and our transgression, but that's more a cause for shame than for boasting. We can't take credit for our faith, for our spiritual health, for our Christian life. God might use different means along the way. He might use a a faithful book, a good sermon, perhaps a podcast. But unless God had worked through them in grace, those things would only harden us in sin and bounce off us like a brick wall. None of us can give one example of a good work that we've done that was not the work of God. When it comes to our good works, our ground for boasting, our ground for boasting, it's not there. There's a blank resume. There's nothing to show. And that's why we boast in nothing but the Lord. Nothing but Christ crucified. Our text leaves no room for putting ourselves on display. Our text leaves no room for flattering ourselves or exaggerating what we've done. We're naturally dead in sin. The devil's servants on death row. And now the Lord has come and done everything for us. And will we, will we magnify ourselves? Even when our lives show good fruits, our volunteering perhaps, or our board meetings, our home visits, our meal rosters, our babysitting... That has to drive us back to God's saving work. It was God who graciously gave us the new heart and the faith to do those things. And because the the Lord has worked in us and produced fruit in our lives, sometimes we, we can speak of our work, we can speak of our labor of faith, as the apostle does, quote, I labored more abundantly than they all. More than any of them. But as a friend of mine would say, watch out when people quote half a verse. Here's what the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says. I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. All glory, all praise goes to the God who works in us by grace. We hold to that God-glorifying truth of Scripture that salvation comes from God and from God alone. When we stand before the Lord on the last 
day. He won't use our works to determine if we've done enough to be saved. Instead, we will appear before him with all the holy works of Christ. We will appear with Christ's righteousness. And that alone, that righteousness of Christ that comes through faith, that is what the Lord will see when he's assessing if we may enter in. And so we boast in Christ. We boast along with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And since this salvation is so richly and freely ours in Christ, we may enjoy the beginning of our eternal rest, even today. We can be assured, no matter how weak we are, we are saved by the free grace of God in Christ, in Christ our Savior, who's already done all the work for our salvation. Amen.